0: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Derrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic comedies about a group of friends whose party is interrupted by an invasion that threatens the end of the world. It's... This is the end versus the world's end. Let another apocalypse begin. So we're here today for our fourth podcast episode in a row as we're in a time of COVID-19 and people are locked at home, quarantining themselves and wondering about the state of the world and is this the beginning of something bigger? Is this a viral apocalyptic event? So we thought... Why not look at this with a bit of a comedy lens? And these two films came to mind. So let's kick off this episode, the review of these twin movies, and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 12th of June, 2013, This Is The End was released. Here's its synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. Six Los Angeles celebrities are stuck in James Franco's house after a series of devastating events just destroyed the city. Inside group not only have to face the apocalypse, but also face themselves. So, Gabe, did you originally
1: catch This Is The End when it was first released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Um, I did. I think off the back of, you know, 2007's Superbad and uh, 2008's Pineapple Express, uh, sort of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg were proving themselves to be pretty, pretty dynamic, comedic, uh, writers, so it felt like um, uh, this was a kind of must-see. That being said, the less said maybe about The Watch from uh, 2012, the better. But, um, yeah, I did see it at the movies, and um, I, uh, I recall having a, a, a riotous time. Yeah, I caught it myself at the movies as well.
0: Uh, I remember the post was pretty cool. It was a, a photograph of all of the main actors all squashed together like they're in a telephone box or something against glass just kind of conveying the chaotic, congested nature of the film, particularly in the second half, once they're all basically locked and barricaded inside. And it had good reviews. And and I hadn't seen Pineapple Express, but I know that you're a huge fan of that film and that kind of comedy duo of James Franco and Seth Rogen. But I thought, yeah, why not check it out? It looks like fun. And the whole idea of being a meta-type film where they're playing different versions of themselves exaggerated versions of their own personality, I thought would be quite fun as well. I've got to say, though, not much, you know, stuck with me. And to watch it again this time in preparation for this podcast recording, I was surprised how little I remembered, which we'll get to in the review. So let's jump to The World's End. So later on the 23rd of August, 2013, The World's End was released. Here's its synopsis from IMDb. Five friends who unite in an attempt to top their epic pub crawl from 20 years earlier unwittingly become humanity's only hope for survival. So, Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched The World's End.
1: Um, I definitely saw this one at the movies. I think, uh, you know, it being directed by Edgar Wright, who had made Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and, to a lesser extent for me personally, Scott Pilgrim vs The World. Again, it was sort of one of those... um, must-see films. I think what's interesting for me about this movie was I saw at the movies and I guess how long ago was that? Uh, this is like seven or eight years ago, seven years ago. And I thought it was okay, but it's one of those movies that really clicked for me later when I re-watched it when I was older.
0: Interesting. Okay, let's get to that in our review because I do think that whole idea of revisiting your school friends and your past and so on is particularly relevant to this film. Like it's a nostalgic film and it's a comment on obsessing over nostalgia and not moving forward. For me, I saw this film as well at the cinema. I loved Hot Fuzz that preceded this film in 2007 and I loved Shaun of the Dead in 2004. At this stage, I don't think I knew that these films were being referred to as the Cornetto Trilogy. It's a term that came about, I think, when they'd finished Hot Fuzz and there was a joke about Cornettos, the ice cream, appearing in the first two films. And The World's End, you have this brief scene where this Cornetto ice cream wrapper just sort of flaps past uh, one of the characters' faces. I think that's Nick Park or Nick Frost. And I didn't appreciate at the time, but I also think that term became more ubiquitous after the fact, when the films were looked back upon as a trilogy quite nostalgically, particularly by the kind of comic geek nerds, which I say in a loving way, the ones that visit comcon con That's when that became more common. So I saw it at the cinema. I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest, even though I loved the previous two films. And I'll get to this in the review, but it didn't improve much for me watching it uh, – so many years later. Interesting. Yeah. So let's just perhaps start with a bit of a shallow dive into the British and Hollywood history as to how we got here. As always, two films based on the same concept released in the same year. Let's start with This Is The End. Now, normally I jump in and give a quick uh, description as to how we got here and how this film arrived at the same time. Gabe, did you have anything you want to add in terms of what you knew about how this film began? Um,
1: No, I mean, Ben, typically I rely on you for this sort of information. (laughs) Uh, I assume probably, if I had to guess, these guys were all sitting around in their rich Hollywood mansion uh, indulging in some sort of a circle jerk and thought it would be funny if they had to ride out the end of the world there. Uh, Is that at all correct? (laughs) That is exactly how this film came about. (laughs) Oh, is that okay? Pretty much. Um, They also did a short
0: film beforehand. Um, So there was a short film... Starring Jay, what's his name?
1: Uh, Boronshol. I don't know. He's Canadian. Jay Boruchel. How do you pronounce? I can't pronounce like Canadian word.
0: <laughs> Boruchel. Jay Mooseman. Uh No, apparently this film was actually inspired by a short film called Jay and Seth versus the Apocalypse, which was created by Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, the director of This is the End, and, and a third guy who doesn't really appear in any way beyond that short film called Jason Stone.
1: Uh, he has an EP credit. Oh,
0: well, that's just because basically he that's was in- his, uh, That's his gift. Yeah, right, because he was basically involved at the very start. So that short film was done 2007 and then that basically became the genesis for the idea. Uh, Goldberg actually later spoke about the influences contributing to this film and he said, look, if you drill down to the core of what I do, it's just ripping off little bits of Charlie Kaufman. That's sort of like his inspiration. And they also like the idea of them just playing absurd versions of themselves in an extraordinary event. But otherwise, everything you said, which is basically a group of very funny people just riffing, probably stoned, maybe not, and that was the idea for the film. As I, I described
1: the- it I described it as a circle jerk, Ben. <laughs> I didn't say riff. I said circle jerk. <laughs> uh, the World's End um, – so as I mentioned
0: before, this is the third film featuring Nick Frost, uh, directed and written by Edgar Wright and co-written by Simon Pegg. They've made the previous two films and what defined this trilogy, the Cornado trilogy, is that they had, I guess, what you call grounded personal stories set in a genre. So we had a zombie comedy, Shaun of the Dead. We had... A Michael Bay Hollywood action pastiche with hot fuzz. And this film is basically taking the end of the world situation, but very much it's a story about friendship. And they talked about how they come up with the idea first as to what is the, the personal story and then set it within a genre after that. Um, I think too, it, I couldn't find any notes this effect, but you can't help but wonder too that being the third film in a trilogy. And his character is just getting older in life. It does feel like the sort of film that someone would write and make and star in as you move further and further from your teen years, where you yourself find yourself looking back nostalgically and wondering, maybe I
1: shouldn't be. Mm. Maybe I need to keep moving forward. Uh, I should actually mention, Ben, that we're recording this episode today on Edgar Wright's 46th birthday uh, of course, people listening to it won't be listening to it on his birthday, so that probably doesn't matter for shit, but um, there you go. There's a piece of trivia. Mate, it's early in the morning, and if I
0: had a big pint of lager, we could toast virtually Edgar Wright through the, uh, the interwebs, but as it is, I'll just toast my little uh, coffee here. But interestingly enough, Edgar Wright actually wrote a version of this as a screenplay titled Crawl when he was 21. Really? Yeah, so basically 30 years before that, she shot this film, which is a very interesting type of story to write when you are so close to being 18.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine it having any of the sort of thematic uh, heft that I see in the movie, and perhaps you don't. But as you said, you know, that idea about it being, uh, about moving away from your teen years. But yeah, what would the teen version of this look like? It'd just be the opening 10 minutes of the film. Well, I think it was
0: basically about the idea that when you return to your hometown, when he was 21 living in London, he returned back to his hometown and with the nature of globalisation and big brand names appearing in cities and spreading out to smaller towns, he started to discover that those small towns outside London, including his own hometown where he grew up, didn't look that different to each other. Everything was beginning to look more and more the same. Mm. It, It was this sort of strange... Homogenization of branding. Right. And he thought, oh, that's interesting. And that then leads to this Body Snatchers idea where everyone starts acting the same. Right. And becoming clones of each other. So it's like a sincere observation that's then amplified to its natural extent, which becomes the genre of a Body Snatchers film.
1: Hmm. Interesting, interesting. And the homogeneity part of it is quite fun, but – I think it took, you know, those preceding 20 years to, to add the rest. Yeah, that's right.
0: So as it turns out, looking back on the history of both those films, they both appeared to have started independently without any connection to each other and, again, another case of Hollywood filmmaking serendipity. So let's jump to a review of the first film. Let's start with This Is The End. So, Gabe, did you like it? What worked for you about this film? And what didn't float your boat? And all of this, of course, is both on a rewatch and your first viewing.
1: Um, To be honest, I I guess I was a bit like you in that I remembered seeing it at the movies and liking it at the movies, but beyond the sort of very memorable opening sequence where a whole raft of, you know, famous people playing themselves are killed, uh, I didn't hugely remember the rest of the movie, maybe apart from a, a cameo or two at the end um, for me it's though sort of the opening half hour that is by far the best part of this movie you know just seeing the way these guys are parodying themselves and like I said the the you know seeing David Crumholtz or Christopher Plass or Rihanna all fall into hell Paul Rudd step on someone's head for me that's the that's the great. And fun stuff. I guess it dips a little bit when it actually starts getting into just the mechanisms of hanging about in the apocalypse. But, um, I mean, it's a nicely made film and stuff, you know. Uh, for, for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, it's probably their best directed movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say that's the, that's the, that's the top and bottom line from, from me. What do you think? Look,
0: I'm surprised the film was so popular because- Really? Yeah, I I do feel, and maybe this reflects the time as well, because these actors were all at their peak at that time. This is before Hollywood had momentarily cancelled James Franco during the Me Too campaign, although that seemed to have fallen away. But everyone was beloved at this time and- I guess it would make sense as to why they were so popular. I mean, you couldn't do the same film again now, seven years later, because I don't think everyone
1: is so hot right now. Are you saying Are you saying uh, Christopher Mintz-Plasse and David Crumholtz wouldn't be invited to the sort of party that Rihanna is at? Exactly. And you should actually remind our listeners as
0: to who those guys are.
1: Um, Christopher Mintz-Plasse was... Um Oh, what's his character's name in Super Fuck. McLovin. McLovin and David Crumholtz uh I don't <laughs> Yeah.
0: The the brother in numbers? Yeah. yeah. Not the guy who was a northern exposure who's the older brother cop. He's the prodigy.
1: <laughs> it's really mean, but he's like Oscar Isaac's afterbirth or something like that. He's like, Oh, shot's older. fired. Shots fired. <laughs> oh man. Sorry, Crumholtz. Yeah, look
0: Many of these actors aren't as big, and in fact, some of them are actually bigger now, like Paul Rudd, for example, since the Ant-Man films and the other Marvel Avengers movies, his star has risen even further. And as always, he looks exactly the same. He hasn't aged in 20 years. Like, Paul Rudd remains like a vampire-esque figure who just looks incredible being 50 now. But I don't know, I just – these films feel smug to me. When someone plays themselves – even if they play an ugly version of themselves, I do find it hard to watch. Now let me say this. James Franco, apparently in the making, was actually quite happy to vilify himself. He was quite happy to, I guess, really characterise himself as this fictionalised version in a negative way, which I guess takes a lot of courage and you know just general confidence in yourself. So that's to be respected. I love what Jonah Hill's doing. I think he is hilarious. Uh, in the start of the film when he's trying to be really, really nice to Jay, at first you just think it's basically Jonah Hill being very artificial, like trying too hard. And then you find out that actually he's got a pact with Seth Rogen to try and include Jay Moore. So he's basically working overtime to make him feel like he's very much included with this LA-based group. But I find him absolutely hilarious and I just find his comic timing in this to be really, really good. Um, It's Craig Robinson that just had me in stitches. So as I'm speaking right now, I guess I'm speaking much more enthusiastically about this film. But whenever Craig Robinson opened his mouth, uh, I was in stitches. I just love his delivery. I just love the way that he – he could read the phone book to me, to be honest, and I'd be laughing. I think I like him – as much as you like Danny McBride, is that fair to
1: say? I, I haven't even mentioned Danny McBride. Uh, why do you just assume I like the most repellent asshole character? Well, it's true I do like the most repellent asshole character. Danny, Danny McBride is clearly my favourite. Him and everywhere is, yeah. obviously the best bit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Over
0: the last, thanks Ben, ten plus years of knowing you, wow. <laughs> you probably would have mentioned Danny McBride once per week. So that's not true at a all. A fair assumption to make. Okay, big fan. You're a big fan of Danny.
1: Okay, fine.
0: Uh, I actually saw by sheer coincidence this fantastic uh, little grab on Twitter, which was tagged best character introduction of all time, and it was just pure coincidence that we're doing this podcast afterwards. And it's that scene where Danny McBride wakes up. He goes to the toilet. He does a piss with the seat down. He dribbles some on the seat, and then you see this giant, dirty-ass, chunky boot come into frame to really crudely just make a gesture of trying to clean the piss off the seat and he just walks away. Like that gesture, everything about that, the wing with the seat down, the wing on the seat, the token effort to try and clean the piss. Like it just says so much about that character and everything you see after that is just so in the spirit of that. Um, I think it's really good. So I really like Like I like I him a lot. So look, I am speaking more enthusiastically about it. I did enjoy it as a bit of – Comedic escapism during this COVID nineteen situation. I do. I got a bit bored towards the end, to be honest. Like I, yeah, I do feel like the first half an hour is strong, which is pre-apocalypse. The first half an hour after that, so I guess the second half an hour of the film is also great when they work out what the hell's going on and people have been killed off and so on as the world splits in half. But the last hour or so is weaker.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: And I can't recall as many comedic moments.
1: No. And sometimes we joke about this, Ben, that I think nearly every movie uh, could probably just be 84 minutes long. But this is a movie that if it was literally like 85 minutes long would be so much stronger, I think. Like I think it's what, uh, 100 and how long is this movie? Uh, one hour and 45 minutes or something. Cut cut 20 minutes out of it and you, you, you it will probably improve. Some might say you might lose a little bit of heart or something, but I don't know. I bet you could keep that in here and, and still just have it ripping along. Yeah, I agree. I
0: agree. I think it's because the stakes don't move as quickly towards the end. Like, people are being killed off too infrequently. Uh, fortunately, Emma Watson reappears and adds a bit of vitality to the scenes when they're barricaded inside the house. But I think the stakes just aren't being amplified
1: enough as we go on, and that's why that moves so slowly in that last third. But oddly for me, it's actually the plot stuff, like the actual plot stuff that I find least interesting. Like, for instance, I love the uh, little weird diversionary like Pineapple Express 2 they film, where Jonah Hill's playing like Woody Harrelson. Um, And it has absolutely nothing to do with plot. It's, It's purely a goofy vignette. And I actually like that a lot more than some of the things about them having to get water or go next door or be chased by a demon beast, you know. I kind of... Don't give a shit about uh, them hiding out in a house while a big hound of hell breaks the house down. You know what I mean? Like, I like the goofier shit, the side shit. I also like the personal stuff as well. Like, I really like the part where Jay is not
0: part of this new friendship group. And we've all been there in that situation where you go and visit a friend interstate and they've got their own new friends now and you try and be part of that new friendship network. But everyone has their contemporary in-jokes and they really sincerely usually try to include you, but as time goes on, you find yourself incredibly becoming the third wheel. Gabe, any other final what works, what doesn't work for you before we move on to the world's end?
1: Uh, I mean, look, not since Dr. Manhattan's giant blue dong in Watchmen have I enjoyed huge demonic cock as uh, Satan's uh, big old rod. In this, that's hilarious, and Backstreet Boys at the end—that's pretty great. I'm not even a Backstreet Boys fan, but that feels like a, a real nice way to bring it home. All in all, I think I think this was fine. It's when we get to it, it definitely feels like a movie that dates itself, though. Um, and I totally hear what you're saying about the the smugness to the whole thing. It's interesting thinking about actors who've played themselves in things. James Franco, for instance, seems to have played, has played himself in things more than he's played other characters. He turns up all the time in stuff as James Franco. At least they're willing to take the piss out of themselves here, but are they as great as, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme playing Jean-Claude Van Damme in JCVD, or Malkovich playing Malkovich in Being John Malkovich, or Peter Falk playing Peter Falk in Wings of Desire? Probably not.
0: You see, Being John Malkovich is one of my favourite films of all time, and I don't find that film smug in any way. I actually find it endearing. Oh, totally. And I love the performance that Malkovich gives. Everyone in This Is The End is in on the joke and that's great. I guess the major trouble in having a film like this too when characters play themselves, when actors play themselves, is that the stakes aren't as high because you're being made aware that you're in a fictional story whereas other films you can watch and just let yourself go and you believe the person playing the character i mean obviously being a comedy this makes it easier just to kind of go with it and so the joke is as you're watching it that they are playing themselves but it's i guess that's why you do the apocalypse right because it's just so absurd it's like the absolute extreme version of high stakes but yeah look I don't really have much to say about this film. I mean, not I'm not being overcritical of it. It's just that it's a film to me that doesn't have a lot of interesting themes or plot twists or huge comedic moments that I want to really talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm I'm, that's not saying it's a bad film. It's just a, a film that I don't feel I will go back and watch this again at some stage in the next two or three years. Yeah. I can see myself not watching this ever again and be quite happy even though it's actually an
1: okay film. Yeah, it, it feels inherently disposable next to something like Superbad, which, um, you know, uh, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen made, which feels much, uh, wrote, they didn't direct, but wrote, which feels much, much more kind of thematically rich and interesting and rewatchable. Totally. All right, let's then jump to
0: our review of The World's End. So, uh Switching lanes, Gabe,
1: what did you like and what grinded your gears? Um, Well, I I think I'll leave the grind gearing for you, Ben, because I'm really interested to to hear about that from you. Like I said uh, in the intro, this wasn't really a film that connected with me the first time I watched it. Uh, Seven years ago, I was probably 29, still in my 20s, still feeling like, uh, you know, had a, a huge circle of, friends, still friends with friends from high school, uh, that feeling that the, you got the whole world ahead of you. Now re-watching it, you know, in my uh, mid to late 30s, I, I feel like I, I connected with it uh, a lot more, particularly in those ideas around being nostalgic for your own youth. Um, In Trainspotting 2, I think there's a line where Sick Boy tells Renton he's a tourist in his own youth. And it's kind of that idea, I think as I get older and you look back, it's sort of a dangerous idea to, you know, marinate in the past too much. And the character of Gary King, you know, an alcoholic who goes back to his um, hometown, sort of spoke to me in that way. Not necessarily the alcoholism part. Though, so as we have joked, Ben, I do like a beer here and there, and there is a certain uh, uh, chunk of movies I remember fondly of watching while pissed. But the 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 things that this movie speak to feel like they speak to me so much more now. Um, of course, Edgar Wright's filmmaking is fantastic, and we almost don't need to even talk about how great his... The way he makes his films are—it's sort of a given. I mean, if you go to YouTube, there's probably about fourteen thousand videos about like how Edgar Wright mastered visual comedy, or where Edgar Wright puts the camera, or how he cuts his scenes. And it's even—and I'm sure Ben, even if you, there's parts of this movie you don't like, you would agree that he's a really incredible filmmaker.
0: One hundred percent. Edgar Wright is a phenomenal creator. Um, what he does really well is that he's obviously learnt the styles of various directors and writers, I should say, but he's probably most well-known for his visual style, so behind the camera, as opposed to being on the page. And he's obviously studied it, he's copied it, he's learnt from it. When he has copied it, he's copied it in original stories, but he's also then copied it and made it very overt what he's doing, like it's the homage. Like Hot Fuzz, for example... Has is edited in a way which is, and shot, straight out of a Michael Bay film. He knows it. The audience knows it. The characters on screen know it who love the film Bad Boys. And he does it so well, on a very minimal budget, I should say, as well. And he knows when to then deviate. He knows when to then take elements of it and mix them together and then create his own aesthetic. And that's why I think people were so enthusiastic about seeing his adaptation of Marvel's Ant-Man because he was going to bring just a really unique visual style to the film. So, yep, unquestionably, I agree, Edgar Wright is a visionary and someone who managed to make really unique looking and feeling films. Interestingly, I don't find this film one of the more interesting of his filmography. Um, The fight scenes are well done. But for some reason, it just didn't connect with me. Maybe that's because the story didn't connect with me. So let's jump to that, the story itself. Can I ask you, are you someone who tends to look back nostalgically at events in history? And are they of school days or another chunk of time, like when you first started making movies just after school? Is there a window of time where there's a danger you look back too fondly on rather than sort of being present?
1: Uh yeah, I guess so. Like I'm fortunate enough that um I'm still friends with the core group of friends I was friends with in high school for instance. Uh in fact, not just high school, all through school. You know, so I've known them for almost 30 years. And, you know, we made short films together, for instance, and things like that when we were in our teens and we hung out in our 20s and, you know, you do that thing where you you drift apart and come back together. So that's certainly something, I guess, that, yeah, uh, speaks to to my experience.
0: Yeah, I myself uh, don't have fond memories of school. I went to a private boys' school and I was creative at school and, This particular school was very much sports-orientated. It was all about rugby. So if you did arts, you're kind of like seen as being, you know, sort of just an outsider just by definition of doing something artistic. So my brother, for example, who's also artistic, he left and went to a different school and he thrived accordingly and his artistic career just took off uh, after school as a result, whereas I felt really just straitjacketed in in terms of being able to express myself creatively So I didn't look at school nostalgically at all. Like I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I left Australia, went overseas to work in the UK for a year, like within a couple of weeks of finishing school. I would just want to get out of Canberra, get out of Australia and just meet different people and go to the other side of the world to find other people that were similarly minded. And that was awesome and a great experience. So I didn't look back nostalgically then. I do look nostalgically back at a time I've talked about in this podcast, which is when I was managing a cinema whilst at uni, and I just discovered film studies at uni. And so so I'm at uni watching how to deconstruct films, so basically watch a film on the screen and break it down. And then I'm watching films in the job I have as a cinema manager at the time, so I'd go into a shift, then watch, say, a movie like Being John Malkovich Afterwards. This is back in the late 90s. And then I'd, on the weekend, um, just fool around with a video camera with friends to make films. So it was deconstructing, watching and constructing. So I have a tendency to look back on those glory days because my job was fun and easy. I was studying it and it was fun, easy, meeting cool other people who you know, were talking about films that they loved, uh, American indie films, and that was the time when indie cinema was huge. So I've got the tendency to look back more than I should at times like that. But it's not about, I guess, like this experience in this film, which is about like one big boozy trip or being the jock at school. It's probably a few years after that. So I do find, by the way, if you do look back at events, it actually can be quite healthy. Like you can look back and take lessons from what worked then and then apply it in the present. The danger is if you paralyse yourself and never move forward and you're only ever looking back. I think there's
1: a bit of a distinction there. And isn't that what the character of Gary King is? He's a drunk who's, you know, uh, refused to grow up or move on since those teen years. Like that's entirely what this movie is about in a way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why I think this film is a
0: film that – is probably best watching when you are 10 years out of school or more because you can identify with him. Even if you aren't that person, you probably know someone like him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting actually while you were um, talking, I was thinking Stephen King does that um, rose-coloured nostalgia, you know, uh, you never had a group of friends like you had when you were, you know, 12 years old. I'll never forget that summer of 1973. Um or whatever it is in Stand By Me, you know.
0: Yeah, totally. I've got some friends, for example, who went to school together
1: like yourself,
0: a group of like 10 friends, and I'm friends with most of them. And they're like a diehard group, uh, ride or die. Like they are really close still. It just depends if you find your peeps at that pivotal time of your development, Um, and that often depends on if you're in a city or a school, like kind of, you know, it's kind of like aligned with your interests and your passion. and. As I the older, I've always thought to myself, oh, it's a shame to lose touch with certain friends, like friends from school or, you know, uni or TAFE or your first job or maybe in your 30s, your second or third or fourth job or whatever it is. But then a friend of mine who I was pissed off with one day because he was not the guy to pick up the phone. He loved catching up, but it was always initiated by me. I was always the person making the call, sending the text to say, let's catch catch up for a beer. And he said to me, look, I see friendships like waves, right? You've got a set of waves, like let's say a set comes in and each wave resembles a year. So you've got like seven years of good times. And then there'll be a break in that time you see each other, much like there's a break between a set of waves. But he said, another set always comes through. Like there's always another set coming through. And sometimes you'll reconnect for that second set of waves and maybe – Sometimes you won't because you'll change beaches or something and you move too far apart. But I quite like that idea of seeing friendships like that, like things can come back and you can reconnect. And in the film The World's End, these guys all reconnect in a very artificial way as led by Simon Pegg's character, Gary King. But you do get a sense after almost dying together, they are now more bonded and have a new moment which is to find their friendship, not just a pub crawl back when they were 18.
1: Well, I mean, not just almost dying together. Unfortunately, a couple of their friends do die.
0: So what's the logic of this film in relation to androids? Is it the idea that if you volunteer to become an android or you are made an android against your will, where does your body go? That's the part which isn't clear to me because at the end of the film, spoilers, a couple of the characters go back to their families and interact with their families as androids and there's a joke that with one of them who's pretty boring, that it was questionable if their family if his family even knew he was an Android. but what's the story logic behind
1: that? Um well, the network, as voiced I think by Bill Nye, explains that the people who've replaced their human bodies. Uh, are turned into fertiliser or something like that. Uh, my assumption is that they're also dead. So I kind of feel a, that seeing um, uh, what's-his-name's character, oh, that actor I love, Eddie Marsden, um, him going back to his family is in a way, I guess, a bit of a cheat. It's sort of saying to the audience, look, he's not actually dead. And maybe that's one of the things I ding this movie for, is that, yeah, like... Five of them start and three of them finish, but two of their mates are killed along the way and it sort of is kind of happy to just rush by that idea a little bit.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Like, it's – I guess it's meant to be a joke, though, that Eddie Marsden's character is quite straight 180. So it's almost like the joke being, well, is there any difference really between the android version of him and the real version of him? But it doesn't really hold water once you think about it too much.
1: no. No. I mean, I think it's interesting as well, the sort of big showdown in this movie is an entirely dialogue-driven scene that ends with Simon Pegg literally, I guess, choosing to end civilization. It really, it kind of really zigs when you expect it to zag, and I think a lot of people might have kind of had an issue with that. I mean, thematically, the idea that, you know, his alcohol addiction ends the world, but... Did you find it to be like a downer of an
0: ending? Like, Yeah, I didn't enjoy the ending. I found it too talky-talky for a start. Um, it could have been half as long. I started getting quite bored, to be honest. Like, I don't need to see a... What is he? Is he a, a form of AI? He's a sentient form of AI, played by Bill Nye, the network. I wasn't really interested in those two reasoning with each other at the end of the film, particularly when the film is a film which is driven by a lot of action beforehand. It just seems... Incongruous. Uh, also, some parts make sense as you watch at the time in terms of the thematic of the film, starting with the fact that Simon Pegg's character Gary makes the choice to not go back in time when he's given the possibility of basically be- being reincarnated into the younger version of himself. So he can literally become young again and return to that moment in time which is the highlight of his entire life. But at that point, for his character arc, he decides, no, I don't want to do that. But he doesn't actually really do it because he's accepted that he can't live in the past. He kind of does it by saying there can only be one Gary King, which is more about his ego, which is a bit of a confused decision to make. I think I think they're trying to say that he's accepted that he shouldn't live in the past, but the words coming out of his mouth don't quite fit with that motivation. And then the film kind of like then just sort of stumbles across the line after that.
1: Yeah, that that's that's true. I mean there is something kind of I mean on a thematic level like I said, is it is it fundamentally his addiction that ends the world? Is interesting, but he does he does ruin the world because they believe it's a basic human right to be a fuck up. Um Surely, there's a middle ground, <laughs> like yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, it's, it's an extreme interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually think that film, the film suffers because of that ending. Um, look, another reason why I don't really enjoy this film as much is I don't find it to be an engaging plot. So we discover that they're androids, okay, and then we discover that they're androids because. They've come to Earth and it's to their benefit to live amongst us but not swamp us, which is explained in the film but I can't even recall. Can you recall the reasoning for that? That's the sweet spot apparently. Is that right? Uh,
1: yeah, although they've actually taken over every single person in the town except for uh, I think three people. So it's it's not a clear-cutter's motivation as a film like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is are phenomenally good, particularly the 1978 Philip Kaufman one. But, you know, that's really clear. The body snatchers want to body snatch everybody, right?
0: See, that just makes it easier to understand. Like, the fact that there are a few people who haven't been body snatched in this film and there's a reason for that doesn't make sense. And then what happens at the end of the film is that when Gary is reasoning, negotiating, arguing with network, he actually draws this to his attention, that clearly this balance isn't happening because only three people in the town haven't been converted to androids. I don't really want to hear about the logic of the screenplay being discussed at the climax of the film.
1: Yeah, right. So for you, would it have just made more sense if the the network wanted to turn everyone, I suppose, using the film's own thematic idea, just not into fuck-ups? Like if every single person was not a fuck-up because – almost identically to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. They're all huge homogeneity. That's just cleaner. Exactly. And also,
0: too, I think it's very weak that they continue on the pub crawl for the reason they they give in the film to not be seen to be acting unusually, like to maintain their plans, which they're basically promoted to everyone in the town. That, to me, is just a weak reason to go ahead with it. Like, I know this film involves suspending disbelief, but I think that's done much more effectively in the first two films. In fact, it's done brilliantly in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, whereas here it
1: doesn't hold hold water for me. Like, okay, let's keep going with the pub crawl, sure. That's a really interesting idea, actually, the suspending disbelief, because I don't think there's a filmmaker – Um, Maybe except for Quentin Tarantino, whose overt style so lends itself to allowing you to suspend disbelief and kind of being happy to go along with that. Do you know what I mean? Like Edgar Wright can really base his movies in kind of non-realities. Sometimes this works really well like uh, um, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and I think sometimes it works very poorly like Baby Driver. Hey, look, I know a lot of you guys out there, like Baby Driver, but that film fundamentally did not work for me. Um, but yeah, I think it speaks to both his his abilities as a filmmaker and the sort of hyper stylization. Even if the stories are based in a kind of uh, inverted commas reality, that he can get away with that. And look, here it does work for me, and obviously it doesn't work for you. So that's that's kind of interesting, uh, an interesting observation you make. I think what's interesting as well is that
0: this is our 20th 20th plus episode of this podcast series so far and I feel like this is the least um, passionate reviews we've given for these two films and that we didn't hate them but I don't think we loved them either. Like I find myself really struggling to identify elements that did grind my gears or did make me jump in the air with excitement. I just think they're both really well-done films, but I don't find them memorable. I don't find their concepts to be particularly unique. I don't find their acting performances to be amazing, but not terrible either. The films, I guess for me, in a nutshell, to summarise both films, I don't find them surprising. And that's an odd thing to say. When the first film's about characters playing themselves that find themselves in Apocalypse... And except for the detail of the giant uh, devil penis, (laughs) like a scene where Jonah Hill is implicitly sexually assaulted off screen, I think, and that thus he becomes, um, what's the expression? Uh, Possessed? Possessed. That's the word I'm after. And then in the other film, The World's End, there's a scene when the fight scene happens about half an hour in, and a spoiler is if you haven't seen The World's End, but I think you know what's happening here, and- Gary punches the head off the android, a young kid, and that's like the revelation that he's an android. But even then, I wasn't as surprised as I should have been and I wasn't increasingly surprised as the film went through. And maybe that's what is why I'm kind of shrugging my shoulders, like didn't love them, didn't hate them, fine films, end of story. That's kind of like the sophisticated final review I
1: have for both these movies. Well, look, I understand what you're saying. I guess I'm slightly different in that, yeah, look, if I never saw This is the End again, that would be fine. I'm sure I'll put it on at some point, though, anyway. It's not bad. I had a good time with it. I do think The World's End improves with age and with each rewatch, and I do think there's depth to it. And I would say I think this is probably Simon Pegg's best performance in a film. You've got to at least give Simon Pegg and the movie that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a
0: really defining characteristic of this film against This Is The End, in that This Is The End feels like a film where there were words on the page but there's a lot of ad-libbing, whereas The World End is a very carefully crafted film. Uh, Every line of dialogue is matched with an appropriate camera angle. A great example of that is when they enter the pubs Gary, played by Simon Pegg, who gives a great performance, I agree, and I think infuses the character with a lot of pathos. He'll walk in and make a comment at the pub. In typical Edgar Wright style, the camera zooms into Gary's face, then zooms into the bartender, then zooms into, you know, four beers and a glass of water being poured. Like, to me, it's a very well-crafted movie, and part of that is also really strong delivery of dialogue by those actors.
1: Yeah, yeah. And look- whether whether you really engage with it, at least um, the world's end feels like it has something to say, whether it's about, you know, nostalgia or or inability to change or starbucking, you know, um, I think as Paddy Constantine's character describes it, that sort of homogeneity of small towns. Um, whereas if you were to say what was the main theme of this is the end, you could probably only come up with a sort of catch-all thing like friendships grow apart. Yeah, I agree. I agree. When, you know, uh, when when you were Canadian and then you moved to L.A., uh, I don't know, you know. Um, but, yeah, they liked it. it was a fun movie.
0: Excellent. Well, I think we're both agreeing that The World's End is the better of the two films. Perhaps we should jump to some trivia, some behind the scenes. What do
1: you say? Okay. What have you got? What have you got?
0: Well, these films aren't the sort of films where you'd expect to be huge stories and, you know, big dramas, um, let's start with, let's mix things up. Let's start with some casting what have shoulda, couldas. So apparently Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, the writers of This Is The End, actually approached Cameron Diaz, Edward Norton, Mila Kunis and Elizabeth Banks to make cameos as themselves at Jane Franco's party. But they had to turn down the offers for the usual, quote, scheduling conflicts on their other films. But interestingly enough, that role that Emma Watson played was actually originally uh, aimed at Mila Kunis, but she couldn't do it.
1: I I have to say, and I'm really apologetic to all of you huge Harry Potter fans, and I know, Ben, you are the biggest Boy Wizard fan of them all, but I find Emma Watson to be so bland on screen. Yeah, this was obviously her trying to
0: like really infuse her personality with a bit of, you know, Edge and so on, having been in those Harry Potter films. And other people like uh, Daniel Radcliffe have tried much more dramatic indie roles. And who's the guy from Twilight again? What's his name? Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Again, indie films, trying to basically look more unattractive physically and play edgier characters. I think this was Emma Watson's attempt to kind of like, you know- do the same thing, but like
1: by swearing. I don't know. And whatever she, you know, swing whatever she's doing for the UN as an ambassador. Just stick to that shit, because because I saw that movie she was in with Tom Hanks, The Circle, <laughs> and let me tell you, <laughs> that's me blow my brains out. Was
0: that film a circle jerk?
1: Oh, dude, actually, it's worth watching because it is so bad.
0: Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> that's the one that's sort of basically inspired by where social media goes wrong. Is that right? Like yeah, Facebook or yeah. something?
1: Yeah, maybe it's hearts in the right place, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> Some other facts.
0: How many, what percentage do you think of the film was ad-libbed?
1: Uh, I'd say a fair amount, although I'd be surprised if you said none, but it does feel like they're having a good time on on set. and You know, uh, Danny McBride talking about how many dicks James Franco sucked feels like something he might have said on the day. Apparently,
0: according to Seth Rogen, 50% of the film was ad-libbed.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Ah, imagine uh, the hashtag release the four and a half hour cut of
0: this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not surprisingly, a lot of actors took um, pay cuts to be in the film, which makes sense, of course. I'm pretty sure the film would have had a healthy computer-generated effects budget. I mean, there's a lot of CG happening. It's pretty well done too. Like, you'd think for a comedy they could have just thought, you know what? we can get away with about 90% and save a lot of money because it's a comedy and, like, look at the films by Robert Rodriguez, right? Like, you know, people just go with it. But I actually think the the textures uh, and the sense of presence of the demons is really, really good for a film made in 2013.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about it, actually most of this movie is just set in one house. So, yeah, apart from a couple of, you know, when they go to the store at the end, It's nearly entirely just set within that James Franco's mansion house. So I'm not not surprised they got some bang for their buck and had enough uh, big shots to put in a trailer to make it seem like it's huge in scope. Totally.
0: All right, let's uh, jump to the other one,
1: The World's End. (laughs) The other one. The other one. The other one, uh, 2012's film The Watch about a group of guys being invaded by aliens written by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Wait, what? We're not doing that film. Shit, never mind.
0: <laughs> um, one of the things done in this film. This film was shot at various real pubs around England, and uh, they would change the signage and so on. But if you watch the film carefully, you'll notice that they've tried to use the same chalk writing on the cork on the blackboards and tried to dress the films in a way that the pubs seem different, but there's that sense of. Um, similarity creeping in. You know, this idea that's been happening in the last 20 years with Australian and British pubs where they've been bought by companies, they're stripped, they're repainted, couches are reupholstered, and essentially they become McDonald's versions of pubs. They start looking and feeling very same, Uh. similar, but with the only difference being the name of the pub and a really cool kind of logo.
1: This really spoke to me, particularly in the idea of nostalgia for the, uh, youth. Because man, me and my mates, we had the the pub that would always drink at. You know, every weekend would be down there. They'd have like lock-ins and would hang out way past closing time. Would order things that were off menu. That we knew the managers' names, we knew the bartenders' names, they knew our names. And then you know, we we reunited for a drink there, and they'd refurbished the whole thing. It was under new management and. Yeah, like it it was quote-unquote cleaner inside or something, but fuck, they just just wrecked the vibe, just wrecked it. Actually, speaking of vibe, but someone who adds a lot
0: of vibe, we didn't talk about Roseman Pike much, but I thought she was one of the best things about The World's End. She almost didn't get cast in this film because she was pregnant at this stage, but I thought she was so much fun. I thought she was the right look to be a love interest for – Patty Constantine's character, she has that great line, she says over and over, oh, crumbs, which is so British. And I just thought she added something more interesting to those five other characters. I mean, for a start, she wasn't a guy, but I thought she had really good comic timing and I would be remiss to not actually mention her because I think she actually elevated the film and added something a bit beyond the bulkiness of those five characters.
1: Yeah, she was great, wasn't she? And this was a year before... Gone Girl. Um, and I think so. That's right. Yeah. Maybe a year after Jack Reacher. It's really crazy to think, though, that she, she was like in a Bond film in 2002. She's one of those people who's actually been around for ages, but also maybe doesn't get enough credit.
0: 100%. Like, it's so surprising. She was incredible in the Bond film before Casino Royale. Like- That's how long she's been around for, 20 years. Yeah. And she was great then, and that was a main role. Like, obviously, she wasn't playing James Bond. She's playing the love interest, the what's been known as, you know, the Pussy Galore type role. But she's really good in that Bond film with Pierce Brosnan, and it's surprising she didn't kick on more. It's one of the worst Bond films, though. (laughs) Like, she's good at it, but... It is, but it's just surprising that, to me, it took basically the film Gone Girl, which I think was 2014, wasn't it? Yeah. For her to really kind of become more popular again because she's a really good actor and she's very charismatic on screen. I think that's fair. Okay, let's jump to Spot the Aussie.
1: I don't think there were any, were there? No, with so many uh, dang cameos in This Is The End, what? there wasn't one Australian actor available? Exactly,
0: none at all. All right, let's jump to Marketing, Methodology, Madness and Missteps. I don't think there was much. This wasn't like the film The Interview <laughs> from 2014 Oh yeah. where North Korea threatened war against the US based on Seth Rogen's film a year later. To me, I don't think there was anything of controversy when these films came out or when they were made. I will jump ahead to the title though. There was an issue with the title. This Is The End was originally going to be titled This Is The End Of The World. Uh, I mentioned before it was based on the short film uh, Seth and Jay Meet the Apocalypse or something like that. But when Simon Pegg, who knew Seth Rogan, found out there was a very similar film being made, he basically called up Seth Rogan and said, can you please change the title of your film, even though you're coming out a couple months ahead of us? Because The World's End is actually the name of the pub in our film. So it's essential that we can't Change the title, otherwise we lose the meaning of the pub. And so based on that, Seth Rogen changed it to just This Is The End.
1: Oh, that's very that's very nice, isn't it?
0: It is, because I actually think This Is The End isn't as good of a title, which we'll get to, because I don't think it conveys what the film's about. And I think This is The End Of The World is just more memorable because it's an expression you actually might say. This Is The End is half of a sentence. And for me... I keep having to think twice what this film is called.
1: This is the end. What do you? What, what else do you think it's called? Uh, like, what do you think twice? The, the, the end of the world? Right. Okay. Well, if Ben accidentally calls it the end of the world, he's referring to this is the end and not the world's end. Exactly. Exactly. Okay.
0: All right. Let's jump ahead. Let's go to the box office. Which movie was the box office champ? So have a guess, Gabe, starting with, this is the end. My guess would be this is the end. Surely this was a, a big hit. It was, and I was actually surprised how big it was. Made for a budget of $32 million US, it did $101.5 million US in America, plus another $24.5 million internationally for a grand total of $126 million US dollars. I've got to say, to get above the magic $100 million mark, for a comedy like this it's pretty amazing. It's an R-rated comedy. And I don't think this film's as accessible as other R-rated comedies. So I was actually quite surprised. So
1: but, it made coin. But 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 it did a hundred million in the US, but only $26 million not in the US. Another 24 and a half internationally. Yeah. Which is sort of the opposite sometimes of what you see. You know, don't you usually want your your movie to do, you know big money in the US and then even more money in the other territories. But this is the problem. This is why it's the death of the
0: R-rated comedy. When I say R-rated, I mean it's like MA-15 in Australia. Yeah, the American R. The American R, right. Because those films don't translate as well, either being dubbed or subtitled. That's why films like a Marvel film can be made and then open in China where there's minimal dialogue, lots of eye candy on screen. You know, CG monsters, big explosions, basically a roller coaster of a movie, those types of films can essentially transcend language barriers. And that's why many comedy writers, like I'm thinking of, for example, Todd Phillips, he actually has said that in our, this is his quote, by the way, not my quote, so don't shoot the messenger, but he's actually said that in this woke culture, you can't make an R-rated film because, A, it won't sell overseas anymore and that's where you get most of your money. Like increasingly you get the minority of your, you know, overall revenue from the US. And secondly, in a, quote, woke culture, unquote, uh, people are too easily offended. And R-rated films are often offensive in terms of coarse language, sexual references, I don't know, you might say prejudice, but in a sophisticated way sometimes. Um, again, quote. So that doesn't surprise me that it only made $26 million internationally and probably speaks to the problem, and that's why
1: no one's making R-rated comedies anymore. Yeah, it's a great shame. I love comedies. I work in comedy, and that thing that it doesn't travel um, uh, uh, always makes me kind of sad. Yeah. Todd Phillips seems like a bit of a tool though, <laughs> like broadly. Uh, I know those weren't your words, we ain't shooting the messenger. And just to even it out, Todd Phillips of the paging Dr. F.A. Star, 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 T. That's the height of comedy, Todd Phillips.
0: Well, he was actually raked over the coals by a lot of directors and comedians after that comment because they thought, don't be silly, it's not just about that at all. Like it's not about you can't make R-rated comedies anymore. Rather, you just should make good comedies, whatever rating they are, but good comedies always rise to the surface. I think the reality is, is it's halfway in between. It's harder to travel those films overseas and so studios are less likely to invest in them, but also a good film usually rises to the surface.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Beverly Hills Cop still made almost $600 million adjusted for inflation worldwide or you know fuck even um Mrs. Doubtfire you know they almost made five hundred million dollars worldwide so yeah I think I think that's probably a, a middle ground but you are right it's probably easier to make a buck off a giant robot than Robin Williams in drag RIP. <laughs> All right let's jump to the box office of the world's end. So it was
0: made for a budget of 20 million US dollars. Didn't do so well it made twenty six million domestically, and that's referring to the US box office, plus another 20 internationally for a grand total of $46 million. So if you apply the rule of threes, it didn't see any profit at its theatrical release, but perhaps more on DVD and streaming, it made some coin back.
1: Yeah, I'd guess Edgar Wright's movies probably all do incredibly well in those ancillaries, uh, I think, as they, as they call them. his films certainly... Are off discussed and incredibly popular amongst the you know hashtag film Twitter lot. So yeah, I'd say I'd say there'd be a fair whack of people who are incredibly pro physical media uh, preparing for a time post the network shutdown that would own this on Blu-ray. Totally,
0: totally. I feel like his films just are designed to be rewatched over and over, and they are very noisy in a good way on social media. All right, let's jump to the Rotten Tomatoes scores. Have a guess. Which one do you think came out on top with the critics on the Tomato Meter?
1: I think both of these would have been well-reviewed, particularly on a, on the Tomato Meter. Um, surely they both got good reviews. Yep, you're right. This
0: is the end, scored 83% with the critics versus 89% for the World's End. Unsurprising. And have a guess which one did
1: well with the fans. Oh, I would say this is the end. Probably has a very high audience score, right? Seventy-one percent with the audiences, and seventy-one percent. Wow, for the world's end. I have to say that's lower than I would have thought. I thought would have thought the idea of just just seeing Paul Rudd step on a woman's head and pop her eyeball out, or uh, as is Ansari fall into hell, would be enough to get it over over eighty-five.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm surprised as well. All right, so it's a draw for the fans. Let's jump to the awards. We need some sort of uh, theme music, don't we? Or perhaps a drum roll of sorts. All right. All right. Well, surely that can be added in uh, right here. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, if you're listening, our incredible sound editor, should we have any sort of Oscar music here or drum roll? Or is it a bit too over the top? And if, if not, this will do. <laughs>
1: Sam, just take Gabe's and add it to the start. (laughs) Add a beat. Add a beat to it. Remix that shit.
0: All right, let's start with the best title. This is The End versus The World's End.
1: Uh, The World's
0: End. I agree for reasons previously discussed. Moving on. Nice. Best poster. Now, I haven't mentioned this to podcast listeners already, but every single week, on social media when I share the release of these episodes, but also if you use certain apps besides the Apple Podcasts app, I actually create a dedicated poster which includes both posters from that episode where you'll see this is the end, then the words versus, and then the world's end poster. So if you have one of those podcasts app now and you have a look on the information as you're listening to this, you actually see the posters we're talking about as we describe them. But if you do not, the poster for This Is The End, as I described before, is all the characters crowded into the frame as if they're pushing against glass to try and escape some sort of drama. The World's End is harder to describe. It's essentially a shot of like a pub sign which says The World's End and then our characters led by Simon Pegg at the front raising a glass of beer and then sort of like fire in the background. Um, I'll go first. I think the World's End poster is terrible. It's not evocative in any way and actually I recall seeing it and not wanting to see the film because of the poster. Wow. I don't think the poster does a great job of representing the film, whereas this is the end as a poster which does something really smart. It basically conveys panic, and worry and congestion, which is exactly what happens after the first half an hour of the film. But also, it kills two birds in one stone by having those headshots that you need to try and sell a film with all of the stars. So it's a really kind of cheeky way of showing everyone's face, but in an unconventional way. So for me, I'm giving it to the end by a long way. To this is the end. See, this is the problem. In fact, on the poster, it actually says... In tiny, tiny writing, this is, and then in huge letters, the end, which is interesting. So it makes me think they were kind of like trying to rebrand it after the fact. Perhaps, perhaps.
1: You're right, though. Neither are particularly evocative and grand. So which is your winner? Oh, well, I'll give it to the end just because I'll You look- mean this is the end? Yeah, that that one. Because because uh, even if it was just a movie about Danny McBride giving Seth Rogen and- Craig Robinson, big hugs, and they're just wrestling around. I'd watch that. Done. All right. Well done to This Is The End taking home the poster award.
0: Let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. Who jumped from an indie film and got their big break in either of these films, just like those actors, starting with This Is The End?
1: Well, it's no one. Because they already were. <laughs> yeah, although I mean, I suppose Jay, Bar- Jay Bar- Baruchel. I don't know. Is he from like the French part of Canada? Should there be like some different emphasis on his Baruchel? Anyway, um, if Jay Baruchel, um, he hadn't. He didn't have the sort of clout and. Um, career as the rest of them, so maybe. But I think he just pissed off back to Canada after this anyway, didn't he? Yeah, I know. So
0: he might get two awards. All right, let's put him down as a nominee for the Bill Fleck Big Break Award for This Is The End. The World's End, I had Rafe Spall. Rafe Spall? Rafe Spall? Yeah, he played the character of Young Man. For those of you who don't know him, he is from Black Mirror, The Big Short. Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom and the BFG. So I'd give it to
1: him, I think, over Jay. But I, I always felt that he turned up in this just as a as a cameo um, sort of favour for Edgar Wright having, you know, previously been in Hot Fuzz in a bigger role and I guess having been in, you know, 20 movies before this.
0: Yeah, okay. Mm, you might have turned me around. All right. Um So could it have been a friendship favour? All right. We could just give it to no one. (laughs) No, let's give it to Jay. Okay. Jay deserves it. Jay Jay needs it. Canadian. Okay. Jay, well done. Let's jump to the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, starting with This Is The End. This Is The End is more now like after they're famous. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you'd basically list all five people who fall to their deaths when the front lawn opens up. So who do we have? We've got... The guy you mentioned- Ugly After Isaac. Yep, Aziz Azara. He wasn't as big- Aziz Ansari. Oh, sorry. He had done uh, Parks and Recreation, but he's become more famous since then, I'd say, with his stand-up specials and Master of None, his TV show. Who else was
1: there that uh, basically- Ke- Kevin Hart. He was already big. Um, uh, what's his name? The, the guy- What's his name? He, he's, he plays like the deadpan guy in Freaks and Geeks. Uh, oh, Martin Starr. From that TV show about Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, okay. He could be a contender. Okay, he's in it. All right, he's my nominee. A unknown singer by the name of I, I don't know if I pronounce this right. Rihanna. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean
0: I, w- I wish her the best uh, that this young up and comer. Uh, I hear that she's very good,
1: yep. and um,
0: and may I expect big things from her. Actually, so she- w-
1: while we're talking about these guys. Absolute full credit to Michael Cera, who's the first to die, and for me is by far the funniest in terms of sending himself up as just the most, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, person you, I guess, least expect to indulge in the type of fuckwittery he allows himself to be presumably fakely implied as. You know, sexually. he's down as a nominee for a big award coming up for me because I thought he was very good. He was great. Okay, well we can we can talk to him about that. Uh, Mindy Kaling, I think, falls and dies too. And yeah, I think I think that's about it.
0: All right, the guy from Silicon Valley, then Stark is it? Martin Starr. Martin Martin Starr. Okay, let's put him down as a nominee. How about The World's End? I forgot what award we're talking about.
1: <laughs> I just started listing people who died. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Before They Were Famous Award. Oh. Oh. Um, uh, the World's end's interesting. Is there anyone who later turned out to be, it's not like they've got um, the guy who played S- Spanky or whatever from The Kingsman in there in a small role or something, is there?
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, there was just, no, no one jumped out. I don't think any of those kids kicked on to be anyone famous as last time we had Liam Hemsworth appearing in the film knowing, uh, you know, for about like one line. So, I don't think we had anyone there. If anything, I think the film is the reverse of that. Lots of established actors coming back for small roles. So, I reckon we'll be handing this award to Martin Starr.
1: Okay. Okay. Give it to Martin Starr. Marty, well done. The award that I can't remember what it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, jumping on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award, named after his iconic show-stealing performance in The Fugitive. So who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Uh, is this the one you want to give to Michael Serra? Well, no, I'm saying that for the Nick Cage Award coming up.
1: Oh, okay. Well... I would have nominated Michael Serra here if we don't want to give- uh, Actually, you know what?
0: You get two awards. I think Michael Serra is fantastic. I agree. I mean, that scene when he's getting- I think he's getting basically a blowjob, but also some anal action in the bathroom. Analingus. Yeah, analingus. (laughs) And someone walks in on him. He just stands there,
1: just deadpanning. He's got a- He is absolutely hilarious. He's got a juice box uh, or a popper, as we call them here in Australia. A a juice box. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, he's really really funny in it. You know- uh, yeah, even I suppose sexually harassing Rihanna, and she slaps the shit out of him, which is which is good. But and and his death, they they that also I guess allows them to give him a particularly gruesome, brutal death. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like he deserves it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Apparently, in the making of it, he was meant to actually pretend to slap her, and was basically making a, make, doing a joke behind her back when she wasn't looking. That was written in the script, uh, and to basically be seen by one of his friends across the room. And then when they were trying to film it, the room was so congested, the director just said to Rihanna, look, can you just slap your ass? And she said,
1: okay, I, only if I can slap him in the face afterwards. <laughs> okay. So, so this isn't a alleged uh, Bertolucci last tango in Paris. I thought that's maybe where your story was going. No, there was no butter involved. Don't tell Chris Evans. <laughs> um, and
0: how about The World's End? Any Tommy Lee show stealers there?
1: Um, who have we got? I mean, does anyone roll in with – you sort of expect a little more from Pierce Brosnan, so you can't really give it to him. No, I actually thought he should have stolen the show
0: but doesn't. Yeah. Like, for example, the other Bond guy, what's his name from Hot Fuzz? Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton does steal the show, I think. Great. And I feel like they've cast Pierce Brosnan to have a connection to that previous film by having another Bond actor – but I feel it's a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a particularly missed opportunity that um, Edgar Wright couldn't get Daniel Craig in whatever his next movie was, and then he would have had some consecutive Bonds. Ah, the Bond trilogy. I mean, if we're not talking about the main characters, look, he probably doesn't... He probably doesn't count for this award and maybe there's an award coming up. But I I, I really like the actor who plays the Reverend Green, the weed dealer.
0: Ah, uh, yes, Michael Smiley. He's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think he's been in a lot of sort of disturbing independent films. He's very
1: good. Yeah, like Kill List and other Ben Wheatley movies or The Lobster. Always a joy when he turns up. So, look, if we don't think we're going to give him an award somewhere else, I'll just give it to him here because it's great to be able to bring up Michael Smiley.
0: All right. So, Michael Smiley, you've got um, – Okay, I only going to Michael Sarah and this is the end. So we'll
1: call that a dead rubber. No one's no one gets the award. Oh wait. So if we disagree, just no one gets it. Uh, well can you convince me? Um actually actually no. Okay, no, here- look, look, I'd prefer to not send Michael Sarah, an imaginary award, so just give it to him. I don't care. <laughs> like- no, here, here's a deal. I think Michael
0: Smiley deserves a leg up. And this award could really do something for his career. I can see like the laurels appearing on a poster, like or in the trailer, like nominated for or possibly the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award. So if that's a gift that we can give to Michael Smiley to try and push his career further, that's something I'm happy to do. Okay, that's
1: that's great. Let's do that.
0: All right, jumping on to the Mickey Rourke Award, recently renamed,
1: this is Gabe's third attempt at trying to find a suitable actor. <laughs> who I think it? I think it's way more than third, by the way, dude. If I thought about it, we had we had the guy from Airwolf, As the award name at one point. I just can't understand your
0: frustration or your growing anxiety to try and keep topping yourself to find someone who really squandered their career. Um, It's like a perverse quest that you have. It it is your world's end.
1: Well, you know, I was going to say, hey, we could call it the Elizabeth Berkley Award, but she's coming back uh, in a new version of whatever that teen show she was. Uh, Which brings us to our sponsor. Um, whatever that fucking teen show she was on. Saved by the Bell. That's the one. Well,
0: it is ironic that we actually did call it the Dust and Diamond Award beforehand, uh, named after the actor appeared in Saved by the Bell. But there's actually a documentary coming out about Showgirls, which actually has her name, Nomi, in the title. So she's doing the full circle and her career's being revived. Yeah. Look, let's stick with Mickey Rourke for now. okay but it might get changed to Elizabeth Berkley by the next podcast recording. Fair, fair. So it's named in the honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles. In fact, Mickey Rourke unfortunately probably squandered his big opportunities twice. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, starting with this is the end?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the obvious winner of this is Franco who found himself in a whole bunch of hot water after... uh, a number of allegations came out about the way he had treated young actresses. So, I mean, does that count?
0: Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, those guys were already established, so, though, so it's not like they didn't make the most of their opportunities. I think-
1: No, but isn't that truly not making the most of your opportunities? You have a international, all-powerful movie star, and you piss it away by trying to, you know, uh, uh, abuse the position of power you hold at your- Acting school? Yeah, okay. All right, let's put him down as the nominee. How about The
0: World's End? Any contenders? Mm, I don't know. What do you think? Not really. I mean, I've got an award coming up for Paddy Constantine soon. Love him. Uh, but I don't think anyone did make the most of their opportunities. They've all consistently kicked on. Like, if I think through the list of the cast, but also writer, director, producers, everyone seems to have just steadily moved on with their careers. So I think you got it the first time around. I think James Franco gets it. All
1: right. Have this award, Franco, you filthy motherfucker, oh. A- allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Still enjoyed The Room movie, though, whatever that one was called, I can't remember. That was
0: great. That was really good. Uh, okay, the winner, winner, Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies? And was it their career high, starting with – This
1: is the end. Do you think this was Danny McBride's career high? I feel like this movie really landed at a time when Danny McBride was at the apex of his most Danny McBride, and this movie allows him to be maximum McBride. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I feel like
0: everything from that patchy beard of his and the hair to his attitude, this was really like brand McBride. Yep, okay, he's my nominee too. How about the world's end? Hmm, um, hmm, hmm. What do you think? What do you think? You hit me. Well, for me, this film was just a solid film. It wasn't a out of the park screamer that really like catapulted the careers of anyone further. They were already on on the way. I actually have a feeling that this actually might have actually slowed down Edgar Wright's career slightly because it wasn't as good as his preceding two films, even though it's a very solid film.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna lean towards McBride. Mm. The the writer of the writer of Halloween twenty eighteen and its forthcoming two sequels, Danny McBride.
0: Done. The Best Dialogue Award. Were there any particular quotes that you liked
1: about either of these
0: films that jump out?
1: I, I think both Particularly This Is The End has a lot of very funny quotable lines in it, although some of which are a little bit blue. Uh, Your mama's pussy was the canvas. Your dad's dick was the paintbrush. Boom, you're the art. (laughs) (laughs) I love how Jay responds too. Yes, thanks, Thanks, James Franco. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, James Franco. Uh, Dear God, it's me, Jonah Hill from Moneyball. (laughs) <laughs> like, uh, James Franco didn't suck any dick last night. Now I know you're all tripping. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of the memorable lines are about uh, whether Franco in Inverticons sucks some dick. So, you know, it, it does really speak to a type of comedy that was popular at the time, I guess, as we say these lines out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a lot of funny lines too. There's this really inappropriate bit
0: where they're talking about their fears the safety of Elle Watson. Oh, yeah. And she's inside. And they're talking about they're worried that she will think that they will rape her. They use that word over and over and over. But they're not gonna do that. And they're saying that they don't they would never do that, but they don't want her to think that there being that many of them. That might be a possibility. And that whole beat where she then walks out and all she hears them discussing sexual assault and comes out panicking like shit is really well done because. It's just a fantastic uh, escalating situation which gets out of control. How about the other one, The World's End? <laughs> the
1: other one.
0: Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there was nothing that really grabbed my fancy. Um, there was one line where Gary says, get back in your rocket and fuck off back to
1: Legoland, you cunts. I mean, you know, funny because they use the word cunts, I suppose. That's a funny word. I mean, it's also a funny word, particularly in Australia and the UK, but judging by this film's international box office, Americans really don't find it that funny. No. What's wrong with you, you cunts?
0: For the American listeners, the C words used in Australia, much more affectionately, it still is considered to be a really strong word and stronger than the F-bomb, but... People actually use it affectionately like Gabe did just then and I don't think that would translate as well to the American audience.
1: Yeah, that's right. Sick cunt is almost the highest form of praise you can give someone. Yeah, exactly. Say any lines, mate? Grab your fancy? Uh, I mean, certainly not. uh, I think it's a very well-written movie, but perhaps it's not as um, quotable as this is the end. I mean, oh, fuck off, you big lamp. Uh, That's good, but, you know. Um, I haven't had a drink for sixteen years, Gary. You must be thirsty then. Uh, it's good. But you know, so yeah, I agree. Yeah, all right. So I think with the winner clearly has to be this is the end. Indeed.
0: All right. The Nicolas Cage Award for chewing the scenery, starting with This Is the End. I'm giving this one to Michael Serra. I just think he's hilarious. He's
1: taking the piss out of himself. He's going big, but it works. Yep, hundred percent. Give it to him. We don't even need to discuss it in relation to The World's End. Done. Michael, your award is waiting
0: and when international flights and couriers return to their normal routine, it'll be in your letterbox very soon. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Look, I think if anything, people in This Is The End didn't take their paycheck and did it for fun. I guess you'd say that they took a metaphorical paycheck by being in a film as a favour, in a sense, like Rihanna. But... I don't think you can put anyone down that film for taking a paycheck. For The World's End, I think as well, I mean, they probably also took a pay cut like, for example, Pierce Brosnan. I don't think he was paid lots of coin to star in that film. So I've got a feeling that we can't really hand out this award to anyone.
1: Yeah, it's not like Liam Neeson turning up in Battleship or, you know, something like that where you just like, He's he's just cashing in, you know, Al Pacino in anything from the last 10 years. So, I agree. It, f- it feels like with both of these movies, everyone wants to be there. All right. So, the award's cancelled. Moving on. The Stephen Toblowski Award,
0: uh, a.k.a. Hey, it's that guy, named after the iconic actor from Groundhog Day. Gabe, which actor triggered Hey, it's that guy?
1: when he or she appeared on screen. Well, This Is The End is a successive series of, hey, it's that guy. Um, Oh, look, Jason Segal, 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 he's standing in the back. It's that guy. So, I don't know. I mean, take your pick from that movie. I mean, Channing Tatum turning up at the end. I know Channing Tatum is very famous, but it is a classic, oh, shit, it's Channing Tatum as Danny McBride's, Sex Gimp.
0: It's a very funny moment. It, and he went, the way he speaks with a very high-pitched voice to be very um, <laughs> passive is just hilarious. Totally yeah, nice. yeah. I, I love him. <laughs> it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the world's end. I had Eddie Marzen, who some know from maybe Vice, but traditionally
1: plays a British actor. We've, he, he certainly, I think from memory, already has at least one Hey It's That Guy award on his shelf. From us. Okay. Any other nominees in that case? Uh, it's cool when David Bradley turns up. Who's he? David Bradley is an actor who you might recognise as uh, – he was in Game of Thrones as Walder Frey. He was in The Strain playing an old guy that actor from how to John Hurt was going to uh, – Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in shit tonnes of stuff and he's in Harry Potter as some old guy. I haven't really seen the Harry Potter movies, so I don't really know. You know, he's he's one of those old guys. Wasn't he – he wasn't Doctor Who. No, he's in that Doctor Who TV movie. Anyway, look—if you looked up his head on the internet, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, David Bradley. I recognise that guy."
0: Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's go with him, David. Your award is waiting for you. Jumping on to the which award's next? Oh, of course, it's the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors
1: who aren't cast often enough. So, starting with this is the end. Any takers? You know, I'd probably prefer just to go straight to the world's end and my nominee would be Paddy Constantine. Done. I agree. We should have done the one. Oh, we didn't do the one, two, three. We would have had the same actor for that one as well. All right. Never mind. Yeah, but it's probably more fun for the next time we do that we have a different actor because, you know, Paddy Constantine is so great and also if you haven't seen it, he's a good director. Check out his movie Dead Man Shoes. And Tyrannosaurus I think as well. Tyrannosaur? Yeah, is that the one? Yeah, it's like every English actor at some stage has to make some sort of autobiographical movie about the horrors of alcoholism, but they're just done, you know, Tim Roth with The War Zone or um, Gary Oldman with, what was the name of Gary Oldman's Alcoholic Father movie? Neil by Mouth. Neil by Mouth. And they probably all have Ray Winstone in them. It's just it's just a the thing they have to do. <laughs> it's a, a rite of passage. Ray Winstone's not in Tyrannosaur, I think, um... Uh, what's-his-name plays, the the, the drunken at Peter Milan. But, but but yeah, great director, Paddy Constantine. Moving on then to the
0: Memphis Reigns Award, named after the absurdly named character played by Nicolas Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Well, we've already made a bunch of jokes about it. It's Jay Boruchel. <laughs>
1: Playing himself. And who's our nominee for The World's End? They've all got kind of funny names in this, but none of them are actually that out there, you know, Stephen Prince or Oliver Chamberlain, Reverend Green, you know, they're, Gary King. I mean, they're not, ridic- they're not nearly as ridiculous as Christopher mintz Plass.
0: <laughs> So basically the winners are going to be the real life actors who play themselves in This Is The End. That's right. Excellent. All right, done. All right, moving on to the Memento Award for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. I'll start with this is the end. I hadn't remembered the part where we see a side profile of a giant devil dick just about as, <laughs> as Jonah Hill is sleeping um, about to be assaulted. Um, that was a memory I must
1: have buried very deep down inside. Um, yeah, that's fair. I think I, think I did... That that was one of the the things that had indelibly stuck with me. Look, I'm going to throw it out there. Love cock in movies. Uh, movies should just have more dick. Uh, uh, equal opportunity. Probably should have more more. More nudity generally. I'm not just saying just for the men from the women too. It's always funny. I love comedic nudity, so I had always sort of remembered remembered that bit. And it's this is not a movie with just one instance of devil dick. As we talked about, there's huge Satan cock uh, in the in the final sequence too. These guys know that giant throbbing red lava cock is never not funny.
0: <laughs> and how
1: about the world's end? Um yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of little things. I've, I've forgotten Pierce Brosnan was in the movie. That's weird. Me too. <laughs> yeah. You know? Completely forgot he was there. I mean, in fact,
0: I almost feel that he should, you know, that should actually be the winner because to not actually remember that James Bond himself starred in the film is a bigger mission. So I'm giving it to the world's end.
1: Yeah, they even do that thing where he's kind of only really in one scene later, but they put him in the opening sequence almost to be like, look, Pierce Brosnan will be in this movie. And you're like, ah, Piers Brosnan will be in this movie. And then, yeah, he just turns up as like a, you know, in the pub, sort of like a librarian or something. Missed opportunity.
0: All right, The World's End takes home the Memento Award. All right, we're almost at the end here. The last award is the Die Hard Award. Did any of these films in the vein of Die Hard inspire a legacy of clones? Have we had many apocalyptic comedies since then?
1: I don't think so. No, and as I joked earlier, it was kind of funny to to sort of connect, oh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg actually wrote a, look, it's not the same, but a movie about an alien invasion in a small American town called Neighbourhood Watch or The Watch that came out one year before the world's end. So I think people have been making apocalyptic world-ending movies in all shapes and sizes and forms. Comedy ones, less so, but I don't think either of these movies are hugely original in the most basic form.
0: Well, that brings us to the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award. If we're not going to remake a film based on the concept, hell, we're going to create a sequel. So Speed took the uh, high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated to a sluggish cruise ship with or without coronavirus on board. So imagine this, Gabe. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to This Is The End or The World's End. Now, they're both classic comedies about a group of friends whose party is interrupted by an invasion that threatens the end of the world. Which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it?
1: Well, interestingly, both movies end with the literal kind of end of the world and it's something we've come up before. Do you... Do you tell a side story, perhaps the adventures of Paul Rudd trying to survive during the apocalypse of This Is The End, or do you pick up at the end of the story and follow you know, Simon Pegg's character as he navigates the uh, post-technology apocalyptic wasteland of the UK?
0: Well, what about if we did, say, a comedic version of The Book of Eli or The Road, right? Those films are set after the apocalypse. Films like Mad Max are set after the apocalypse These two films, This is the End and the End of the World, sorry, This is the End and the World's End, confusing titles, are set during the apocalypse. So isn't the logical thing here is that we basically do maybe something like that film Paul, which is a road trip by the guys who did The World's End. We do it like a road trip
1: comedy post-apocalyptic film. Yeah, there's not a huge amount of post-apocalyptic comedies, is there? I mean- zombie land, I guess, is a post-apocalyptic zombie comedy. But it does feel like a genre that hasn't been made. So perhaps this is a way to uh, make the pitch feel uh, original and fresh. So do we go with This Is The End, which made a lot more money, $126
0: million globally versus the $40 million from The World's End? This Is The End also has a lot of famous faces, even if we get 25% of those faces back, that's okay because that's enough to try and lead the film. But, you know, there's a huge fan base for the Cornetto Trilogy boys of Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. So which way do we go? Who we want wandering the landscape in a
1: comedic version where cannibalism becomes hilarious? Well, cannibalism is never not hilarious. So, I mean, I think we're pitching to Hollywood. You just have to lean into the, hey, look, We'll get a whole bunch of famous people and famous people who are famous now, no disrespect to uh, uh, ugly Oscar Isaac, but we don't want him back. We want Dwayne The Rock Johnson turning up for a comedy, for a cameo. Okay, for a cameo. So in
0: that case, who's it going to be? We're going to have the main cast backward, James Franco, but
1: actually I don't know. Like They're all in heaven or dead. They're all in heaven. So who's left on the ground? Well, perhaps there is a character um, we can use who... Was in it? Who is still popular? Look, like I said, I'm going to go back to uh, maybe maybe Paul Rudd is our way into this movie. We didn't see him die in this. He just sort of ran off into the distance carrying a bottle of champagne. Um, maybe it's you know uh, him teaming up with someone. He still has clout. He's Ant Man. He still looks exactly the same. So you could you could set it the day after. Done. Okay, so it's Paul Rudd. He's in a
0: post-apocalyptic landscape where there's been you know, the enrapture of some sort, right, the rapturing of people sucked into heaven, uh, demons on the ground, like that scene, that nightmare scene from Batman v Superman. So Paul Rudd, he's wandering the landscape, he's got a bottle of champagne. Are we seeing it the day after or are we talking two years in advance and he is a comedic Mad Max figure? Because we've had ripoffs of Mad Max like Waterworld, we had actually haven't seen a comedic version of Mad Max,
1: like one of those sort of parodies, like date movie or scary movie. Oh, whoa, whoa. we're not we're not lowering ourselves to that kind of. Okay, okay. If our pitch is if our pitch is meet the Spartans, you can you can re- remove my name from this shit right now. Okay, Alan Smithy. Look, we've we've pitched some terrible ideas uh, in these pitch parts, but I don't think we've ever sunk to that level. Okay, so we're not doing a parody movie. It's a you
0: know a sincere sequel. It's a comedy drama. You might call it a dramedy. Paul Rudd, the day after, or two years later. How far in
1: advance do we set the sequel? I mean, I think it has to be set fairly, fairly soon after. I mean, maybe it's Paul Rudd reconciling, was it enough to just be the nicest guy? You know, he's he's well known for being a nice guy. In the apocalypse, was it ever enough just to be the nicest guy? Could he have could he have been even better? <laughs> I don't know. So do we copy and paste a
0: pre-existing plot like Book of Eli or Mad Max onto this? And, of course, when that those films zig-wee-zag to make it easier. So let's say, for example, at Book of Eli. What if Paul Rudd is wandering the landscape two days later, dressed in the same clothes, looks amazing, he's 50, looks 30, and he ha- he's carrying the bottle of champagne and he is carrying, like Denzel Washington in The Book of Eli, the World's Last Bible, Paul Rudd is carrying, playing himself in the film, just in the spirit of the previous film, this is the end, the last bottle of booze, and therefore that makes him a god, and essentially he becomes a Jesus Christ Messiah figure, because everyone wants to spend time with the guy and particip- possibly
1: partake in the last bottle of booze on earth. And and you would want to do that with Paul Rudd. I mean, if you had to choose someone, it probably would be pretty pleasant. So what's the story? Is, is he
0: fighting off marauders? Does he become hardened? Does he charm them with comedy? And when a marauder appears, he makes jokes and befriends them and peels back the onion layers to find the softer side and appeals to their heart. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay, so the executive looking at us right now. <laughs> yeah, I guess You're giving so. me nothing at all. we going to bring this pitch home. What's our basic storyline? Who does he
1: meet? What are his hurdles? How does it finish? All right, the basic pitch is: it's like this is actually the classic example of you'd write this is the end, and it's just like guys, you just get more of the same. You just get a whole bunch more uh, apocalypse. You get a whole bunch of fun celebrity cameos. It's topical. Uh, It's for right now. we got, we got The Rock, we got uh, Kevin Hart back. He's coming back, but, uh, but, but we're not reinventing this shit. All right, here you go. Here's an alternative pitch.
0: Paul Rudd, we see, runs away with a bottle of champagne in the first film. We pick up on the second film where he's actually bunkered down in an empty house with a bottle of champagne and other people come to his door, famous people, because the film is set in the Hollywood Hills. He lets them in and he has a crush on one of the characters, one of the real-life actors, right? And the film basically becomes like an American teen comedy where there's a part having a party to celebrate the end of the world because they accept it's all over, and he's trying to crack on to a woman, and then the end he realizes you know what just because she's a star, he doesn't really need her. What he wants are his friends instead.
1: Okay, Paul Paul Rudd's been married since two thousand and three, so he returns to his wife. Nice, and that's the end of the film. That's that's Paul Rudd's great choices between. Um, Young, nubal, Hollywood, fresh off the bus versus the 17-year marriage that he's probably uh, faithfully enjoyed. (laughs) All right. And what's our title? This is The Ends with dollar signs
0: through the S. Uh, Yeah. Maybe something about maybe not all right with Rudd. And and the pitch basically ends by saying, and guys, the screenplay is only five pages long because you know what? We get some funny people in the room. They're playing fictionalised versions of
1: themselves. They'll ad lib. Yeah. It writes itself. Yeah, and the movie will end up only being 37 minutes long because it turns out that was harder than we thought. (laughs)
0: And, Gabe, that's how we make a sequel to This Is The End called This Is The Ends. A ruddy good time. (laughs) Okay, that brings us to the end of another quarantined lockdown apocalyptic, end-of-the-world show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good and making us sound more humorous than we actually are. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week?
1: Uh, ben, I'm excited to say I've actually started a Patreon, so you can – I'm just kidding. I, would, <laughs> I wouldn't do that shit. Fuck that. Or a, sou- a SoundCloud? Is that is that the other one? Okay. That's uh, another one. Yeah, man. no, don't worry, guys. Uh, Twitter. Twitter. At Gabe And
0: I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show and the fourth episode in our COVID-19 series. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Stay safe, Gabe. Stay safe, Ben. All the best. Until the end of the world. Until the end of the world. Over and out. Peace.